Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin and go to Moscow to speak with Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a Moscow-based defense analyst, columnist, and journalist who previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences. From 1994 to 2005, Felgenhauer published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta. Felgenhauer's regular commentary on Russia used to appear in many other local and international publications, but is now shut down due to censorship. We will discuss how the military landscape in Ukraine looks from the Russian perspective and how the Ukrainians are not just holding their own, but are likely to do better as the war drags on into the fall when Pavel predicts there will still be a Ukrainian army fighting, not just a guerrilla force. Then we'll get a further assessment of the military situation in Ukraine from an analyst who recently surveyed the terrain in Ukraine where the fighting is now taking place. Joining us is Malcolm Nance, a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer with the U.S. government Special Operations, Homeland Security and Intelligence Agencies, who has over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism. He's the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It, and the forthcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Malicious, Terrorist, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Then finally, with concerns that Putin may use chemical or even nuclear weapons in Ukraine as his war does not go as he planned, we will speak with Cole Smith, a writer and director who received an MFA in screenwriting at Columbia University after serving in the United States Air Force as a nuclear missile operator. We'll discuss his op-ed at The Guardian, I Was a Nuclear Missile Operator. There have been more near misses than the world knows. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now from Moscow is Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer, a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences and from 1994 to 2005 published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Novaya Gazeta and he does regular commentary on Russia which appears in many other local and international publications. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer. Hi. Well, nice thanks, for, to, thanks for joining us, uh, Pavel. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you're not publishing anything more now, are you, in the Bay Gazette or anywhere else? I believe uh, that... Well, I had a piece just several hours before the war was declared, and then afterwards, well, the newspaper more or less ceased to comment on the war because of the very strict draconian rules of censorship right now in Russia. Uh, that would most likely mean either lying or uh, being closed down. So right now they're kind of withholding a bit comment. And I'm withholding comment in Russian, though I do speak to Western, Eastern, and Middle Eastern and TV networks give other comments, but try not to write down anything much so that it's, uh, well, they would not have a case, I mean, of me spreading so-called uh, fakes, as they call them. Well, but anyways, but you, I'm, I, that's how the situation sort of is. Sure, but you couldn't even use the word war, could you, or invasion? 
In Russia, no, you should call it an operation. I see. So, so how is the operation going? From your vantage point in uh, well, Moscow. Well, it's uh, clearly not going good, though. The official line coming from the Kremlin and the MOD is that it's kind of everything's on track, everything's on plan. Well, what else could they say? Because uh, right now they're not saying that it's a total disaster, which actually it most likely is. Uh, objectively, the speaking, the Russian advance has ground almost to a halt. Russia still has more some of the initiative, but the advance is already kind of a caterpillar speed of um, several meters, maybe one half a kilometer a day. And Ukraine is a big country, so it's uh, more or less uh, stopped. Now, the scales are kind of moving towards the balance. Though Russia still has the advantage, the upper hand, in having much more heavy weaponry, uh, more jets, long-range, different kind of missiles that can reach deep into Ukraine. Ukraine can't really fire back effectively against Russia. They did in the very beginning fire a short-range ballistic missile or two at the Russian air base close to the border but and destroyed apparently a couple of jets, but that's more or less all they could do. Uh, but still, on the, but, uh, the Russian advance has run into a number of uh, serious problems. Uh, on, uh, I believe mostly because it was very poorly planned, and uh, so the Russians kind of attacked not in a concentrated way to concentrate their blows, in most cases. Uh, but, no, uh, but in kind of different directions and different parts, uh, so not really connected with each other, while the Ukrainians can use operational lines to move reserves around. In the West, as the Pentagon expected, that the Ukrainian organized resistance is going to collapse very soon, in two, three days. That's what the Pentagon said before, in three days, Kiev will fall, the organized resistance would collapse, Ukrainians would resist, but that would be a kind of guerrilla campaign. Well, they are not. In a guerrilla campaign, they still have their chain of command intact. They have uh, their military staffs working. They're fighting like an organized military force, performing right now a mobilization uh, and moving forces and moving uh, men and receiving equipment from the West and augmenting reserve formations, uh, volunteer formations with the regular formations, which, of course, will take some time. And, uh, well, the Russians, which uh, threw more or less their regular standing army, and it was a big one, it is a big one, they threw it in, all in. Uh, they don't have much reserves right now left. There are, of course, other Russian military units that are not involved in this campaign, but there are not so much of them in the army left. And there are places where you can't remove them, like in the Kaliningrad Amkhlyv, or I don't know, in the Kuril Islands, or in Tajikistan, or in uh, uh, the Karabakh, or some places where you can't actually pull out much. So they're scrapping kind of the uh, barrel to get something more into the field. And uh, since they don't have enough reserves, that's why actually their advance ground to a halt. A lack of immediately available reserves to uh, throw in and uh, overwhelm the, the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians are kind of getting stronger. The Russians are in the same, are getting weaker. Uh, but this is a long process. It's not that it's going to the tide of war is changing anytime soon. It's going to be a very bloody and gradual process. And again, I'm speaking with Dr. Pavel Falkenhau, who is in Moscow, where he's a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences from 1994 to 2005. He published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, the Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhau joined the staff of Nevaeh Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many other local and international publications. And we're already in day 18. Does that mean, uh, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, that uh, 
that Putin's going to pressure Belarus to enter the battle if they if he's out of reserves? Well, that would be a bit of a problem. The standing Belarusian forces are minuscule, about ten thousand men or no, mm-hmm. very small. Belarus has a very small defense budget, two and a half times less than that of Estonia. Um, Lukashenko never spent much money on his military, didn't believe that's necessary. He spent his money on his special police kind of uh, units and KGB. Those keep him in power. Uh, So for for them to move anything, uh, they have uh, uh, five army brigades ready for action, two heavy and three brigades light. The light brigades are less than 2,000 each. These are airborne special forces and air attack brigades, but they're small. They won't change anything on the field. Uh, For them to do something on the field changeable, they'd have to mobilize reservists. In In Belarus, they have reservists. I mean, they have been called up and trained. That's how the system was. I mean, that they spend little money, but would expand in in an attack. They would, like, you know, the Swiss or the Israelis, they would bring in reservists. But there's a problem that reservists most likely would not want to go to fight fight the Ukrainians. They could, if you begin to call them up and give them arms, they could turn their weapons against the regime itself. Uh, So that's a very tricky issue. And of course, you need the Belarusians to kind of most mostly maybe sit put and uh, to see that there's uh, uh, to kind of balance the Polish armed forces, which are a very formidable army. The Poles have a standing army of four heavy divisions ready for action. They're not on the Belarusian border, but could swiftly move. They are there. Poland is not very that a big country geographically, uh, so you can't actually move everything out of Belarus. That's also not an option. So yes, that's why the Russian, uh, I mean, the defense minister says we'll bring a, a fifteen thousand or I don't know ten thousand, fifteen thousand uh, uh, Syrian fighters. And Putin says, yeah, sure, why not? I mean, that's a sign of rather desperation that they run, they have a manpower issue. Uh, well, the Ukrainians have other issues, but not manpower. And I believe that, uh, I say, it will take time for the Ukrainians to complete their mobilization of reservists and volunteers, augment them with the, the, with the regular army, arm them, with also with weapons that they're getting from the West, with the uniforms, boots, I don't know, helmets, uh, body armor also coming from the West. And uh, then kind of they'll be ready to have for action, I don't think, now, no earlier than April. So in April, uh, maybe May, we could see serious Ukrainian counteroffensive action against the Russians. Uh, hardly earlier than that, but uh, then the situation could begin to change, though gradually. Uh, Ukrainians may achieve some kind of victories. Well, they'll be most likely looking, you know, for some kind of a Bunker Hill, Lexington thing, or maybe Saratoga, if you look at the American War of Independence. Somewhere they can kind of defeat the Russians and seem to be defeating them, taking prisoners and so on. Uh, that could happen already in May and in the summer. Uh, by uh, the next fall, in, in half a year's time, I think Russia is going to run into serious uh, problems, very serious problems. Uh, the, the war may conti- continue to drag on and not be very successful. Uh, the Russian economy is going to absolutely tank under um, financially and economically. Everything is going to tank because uh, there's uh, because of the very severe uh, sanctions. There will be mass unemployment, uh, decline, a serious decline of living standards. And all this put together could mean a very serious internal political problem for the regime. Somewhere there. So, of course, right now, is to strike a deal with uh, the Ukrainians on a ceasefire and withdraw, withdraw the troops, announce, announce, uh, declare victory, that the objectives of the 
uh, military campaign are achieved. Ukraine uh, uh, says it's not going to go into NATO and return basically the troops to the antebellum to the to the positions of uh, February 23. Uh, Moscow, of course, also wants Ukraine to recognize the annexation of Crimea, the independence of the uh, these the Donetsk republics. They won't do that. And I would not, most likely not done that too. The best way for Russia to avoid the war of attrition is to, uh, right now, declare victory and withdraw. Because a war of attrition between Russia and the entire mankind, or at least the entire, the very united West, is a war Russia can never win. So do you think Putin knows that? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy's been in the Kremlin for already 22 years, I mean, ruling Russia. It's hard to comprehend what he thinks. Mm. I mean, you, you, many people in that being so long in power get, you know, even those who were very smart rulers, after 22 years, maybe not that smart. I don't know. Right now, he doesn't show signs that he's ready to call it a day, accept defeat, a partial defeat and withdraw, because of course he knows it won't be easy and the old sanctions won't go away. But he, if I would be in his place, I'd negotiate some kind of deal. Because again, the alternative is a war of attrition with the West. The Ukrainians are going to mobilize and mobilize and mobilize. They have lots of volunteers. There'll be volunteers coming from the West, specialists, actually, maybe even uh, flag officers and officers with, with experience to work as advisors or commanders like the Poles and the French fought in the American War of Independence uh, because uh, Ukrainians have enough manpower and expertise and use and uh, commanders who know how, know, know how to use modern warfare. The Americans uh, will provide them increasingly with uh, uh, intelligence information. As right now, it became clear no one knew that beforehand. No one knew how many Russian spies and traitors uh, Russia planted into Ukrainian military and to their top command, too. And now the Ukrainian generals are legit. They are not traitors. They're fighting. That means the United States would be ready to share with them uh, raw intel online. And the United States has the best intel gathering uh, uh, capabilities in the world, including targeting information coming from satellites, coming from planes, drones. I mean, uh, uh, NATO AVAXs are just simply hanging over Poland on the border and looking deep into the conflict zone. So they can supply uh, the Ukrainians much better targeting information than Russia can master. So there are many things that are going to go wrong with Russia. I mean, the Ukrainian, of course, economy is also a basket case. Uh, but that doesn't really matter for the war effort because Ukraine will be given money, uh, goods, humanitarian aid in, in quantities enough that they can w fight the war effort and not go bankrupt, where Russia may not have those resources. Uh, so a war of attrition is a war Russia can't win in Ukraine. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, uh, if it goes on into May and then uh, into the fall of the guerrilla campaign, in May and it's April... Not it, uh, sorry, it won't be a guerrilla campaign. It's still a very much so, chain of command. It's, an, it's an, okay. uh, an army fighting an army. Okay, so... It's not guerrilla. Sure, but in the short term, the spring means lots of mud, which will slow down the armor. And what do you know about morale within the ranks of the Russian military? Well, morale, of course, is most likely not very high, but it's not that the Russian armed forces are falling apart. They're good Russian soldiers. They are being ordered. They're fighting. There was, in the end of February, a thaw, very warm February, and there were problems with this so-called column uh, advancing on Kiev, and actually it was stuck in the mud. Uh, but then there was a, a, a wind coming in from the North Pole, and there was a spell of cold weather in Russia and in Ukraine, and this calm actually dispersed, as it should have, into the woods and the fields to organize a more regular uh, siege of Kiev. 
but that wind, the weather is going to be, the spring is coming, and that means there's going to be another pause, at least in uh, maneuverable swift warfare. Uh, not in all parts of Ukraine, but around Kiev, most likely, yes, maybe in other parts of the north. And that, again, is an advantage to the Ukraine because time is not working on the Russians, and the Ukrainians need time. They, they, they have already those uh, reservists and volunteers augmented into the regular military. They'll need time to prepare to uh, uh, get those forces actually fighting. And in uh, the process, they'll learn to fight. And better to do that when you're more or less not moving a lot around, when you're sitting in sitting position. Before They're not yet ready for a real big, successful counteroffensive, because that's most likely what the Ukrainian general staff is right now thinking about. It's time for them to counteroffense. And if they're successful, that will change Ukrainian international standing and also mean that much more Ukrainians are going to also volunteer to do the fight, will raise their morale. Their morale is not bad, but the, Russia, the Russians are also not falling apart. So it's a kind of uh, stalemate of sorts. Though, uh, with the Russians yet still having a bit of an upper hand, but this is not, not very much, not, uh, just a bit. Well, Dr. Pavel Pogenhauer, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I mean, speak with Dr. Pavel Falkenhauer, who is in Moscow, where he's a defense analyst, columnist, and journalist. He previously served as a senior research officer in the Soviet Academy of Sciences from 1994 to 2005. He published a regular column on defense in the English-language local daily, The Moscow Times. And in 2006, after more than six years as an independent defense analyst, Felgenhauer joined the staff of Nevea Gazeta, and his regular commentary on Russia appears in many other local and international publications. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with a further assessment of the military situation in Ukraine from an analyst who recently surveyed the terrain in Ukraine where the fighting is now taking place. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Malcolm Nanks, a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer with the United States Government Special Operations, Homeland Security, and Intelligence Agencies, who has over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism. He's the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It, and the forthcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Malicious, Terrorist, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. Welcome to Background Briefing, Malcolm Nance. My pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Malcolm. We just were speaking with uh, Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer in Moscow, the defense analyst there. Obviously, he's restrained because of censorship, uh, but he was very open about what he thought was happening with the Russian forces and the Ukrainian forces. And he feels that the Ukrainians will be in the fight way through the fall and that they're, in many ways they're going to get better and mobilize more forces, not less. What's your take? Well, I agree with that assessment, and I would go a step further. Certainly, based on the Russians' performance from the beginning of the war, uh, within the first week, I had assessed, uh, and, and the only person in national news media, to assess that it appeared Ukraine had defeated all of Russia's strategic goals, even though many of the forces hadn't flown into Ukraine at that time. The what we would call, you know, the tail to versus the tooth, right? The the amount of combat forces that are actually on the pointy end, uh, the, you know, which is the, the tooth, the bite of the Russian army versus the tail, the logistics portion that keeps the combat arms working. Uh, the, 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 it, apparently, there's a lot more tail to the Russian tooth. Uh, Russian forces uh, that carried out their offensives were blunted. Uh, almost completely, with exception down in southern uh, southern Ukraine, 
where the Russians did carry out a breakout from Kherson, uh, from Crimea, and then uh, connected what we call the land bridge from uh, Crimea to uh, Melitopol and now surrounded Mariupol. Uh, that's the only area of, of great success that they've had. Even the offensives coming out of Kharkiv, that is completely stalled. Uh, the offensive that went through Sumy um, and uh, from the northeast and that is moving west towards Kiev, that is a very long uh, logistics pipeline to them where the entire rear of that Russian combined arms army is exposed. Uh, even the, the you saw the fighting that came down from Belarus that was supposed to take uh, the capital Kiev quickly, uh, immediately stalled. And, and I know I had done a um, what we call a route assessment. I had driven all of the roads uh, that I assumed that the Russians would take from the, 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 the Belarus city of Yeltsk and Rachitsa uh, down to Chernihiv. And you could just see it just wasn't going to work um, because one of the things most people did not factor in in these pre-war breathless assessments was that there is a Ukrainian army. And the Ukrainian army is fighting, not desperately. They are fighting with, with almost joy in their hearts whereas the Russians had to trick many of their forces into believing they were on an exercise. Russian soldiers don't want to be there, and they are not fighting with their heart. So the fact that Putin has called up or has accepted the call for about 15,000 Syrian fighters to come in, is that a sign that he's not doing well? Although those Syrian fighters are pretty bloodthirsty, aren't they? They're the ones trained with street-to-street, house-to-house fighting. Well, you have to understand that that's a mercenary force, which is very different from calling for international volunteers for the Ukrainian army. In fact, most of the volunteers that are entering the Ukrainian army are Ukrainian citizens who live in other countries that have come home to defend their homeland. Uh, and there are some international troops there, you know, British, American, very few, quite possibly much, much smaller you know, numbers of a few hundred at the top. But on the side of the Syrians, this is just straight up mercenary warfare where they are trying to hire 16,000 Syrians to come in, obviously to replace the 10,000 or so Russians who were killed or killed, wounded uh, or removed from combat in the first two weeks. Look, you know, I, I was in Afghanistan, I was in Iraq, I was in Desert Storm. You add all of the American wars up since Vietnam, and the Russians lost all of that, oh, including 9-11, all of that in 14 days. It is a brutal war. It is going on, you know, a lot of the combat that is, you're not seeing uh, take place is really just hammering the Russians, uh, you know, pointy end of their spear which is being dulled. That is why they are bringing in Chechnyan special forces, one element of which was wiped out in a, um, a helicopter-borne assault uh, northwest of Kiev, including their commanding general. And now they're bringing in more Chechen special forces. And then these Syrian mercenaries, as well as PMC Wagner, which is a Russian mercenary company uh, that had men in Congo, Libya, Syria, and uh, in, in all points south uh, to come in and now act as a mercenary force. Don't forget that 75% of the Russian army is in Ukraine right now. The entire army that protects Russia, 75% of it's in Ukraine, and they are not having an easy time of it. No, in fact, uh, Dr. Pavel Felgenhauer just told us uh, that uh, there aren't, really aren't any more reserves. Well, that's because they thought that the, the forces that we would consider reserves, the Russians transform into Rosgardia, which is the, uh, an occupation force, military police force that just come down in, you know, soft trucks. And, uh, you know, they have these, uh, um, these mass arrest vehicles that they expect to just roll in, take over the government, co-opt the police and then occupy the country with, you know, AK-47s and batons. Those forces are also in uh, Ukraine, but they are part of the tail. 
they're part of the logistics forces. And as those forces get wiped out, and we're starting to see that. I, I don't, I don't, you know, use the phrase wiped out unprofessionally here. We are seeing entire elements getting destroyed. And in fact, if you watch these uh, news media maps that shows very large swaths of Ukraine in red Russian, you know, ink, they're completely inaccurate. The Russians control nothing but the highway that they are currently on, with the exception of that land bridge, as I said, in the south, uh, you know, east of Odessa. But those roads are all they own within, you know, one kilometer right, one kilometer left and a kilometer forward. The rest of the country in between the Ukrainians occupy, the Ukrainian citizens live and Ukrainian guerrillas are going to operate. You know, I spent a month literally laying out, you know, reviewing the terrain, doing intelligence preparation of the battlefield. And it was very easy to see that they, Russia just cannot take that country with what they have. They, the Nazis had, I believe, 1.4 million men who invaded through Ukraine. And, the, and the, the Soviets, to retake it from the Nazis, had almost 3 million men. So what is 175,000 uh, you know, soldiers going to do when 75% of those are fuel truck drivers or you know, uh, maintenance and ammunition shippers. They are not the forward combat troops, even though they have rifles. And again, I'm speaking with Malcolm Nance, a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer with the U.S. government Special Operations Homeland Security and Intelligence Agency, who has over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism. He's the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It, and the forthcoming book, They Want to Kill Americans, The Malicious, Terrorist, and Deranged Ideology of the Trump Insurgency. So why then, Malcolm Nance, did the DNI, Avril Haines, and the head of the CIA, Ambassador Burns, why did they basically, uh, in their testimony to the Congress, suggest that Putin was inevitably going to win and he was going to, obviously they got this part right, that he was going to pound the hell out of the cities and uh, civilian losses would be hideous. But they more or less said that uh, it's inevitable that Putin was going to win. That's the last thing that Zelensky needs to hear. So what's happening on our side? Well, I think that is, that assessment is now dated, and we know that uh, U.S. intelligence has been saying, you know, when they started it, they they factored in a competency to the Russian forces that was supposed to match all of these new technological vehicles that the Russians had produced over the last 10, 15 years, including three categories of upgrades, the main battle tanks, a new main battle tank surface-to-air missile systems, which were supposed to be second to none, you know, artillery uh, that was supposed to be world-class and vicious, you know, along the lines of the World War II Soviet artillery. Um, However, what wasn't factored in, because you wouldn't know, was the capacity to want to fight, uh, your ability to use that technology correctly with proper strategy, tactics, and maneuver, uh, we're not seeing any of that. As a matter of fact, one uh, one um, Ukrainian soldier said their tactics are literally Soviet. They line up on a tree line and then they charge across a field and get mowed down. So, you know, none of the Soviet era uh, mindset has left the Russian army. This is a it may, in fact, be a paper army. And as the Russians come forward on those highways, I keep telling you, they control. What they don't control are the people, guerrillas, and, and, and armed forces that are now to their right, to their left, and behind them. And so as you're attacking, you know, and, and, and we saw a good example of that in, um, in, the, in the village of Bovary, where they came down with an entire mechanized uh, armored in, uh, regiment down one road and then were trapped in a in a town until artillery good artillery precision guided uh javelin missiles uh just started decimating them and they literally had to turn around 180 degrees and leave that village 
Uh, that's what they have in store for them. The question is how many of these, these forward Russian elements will have combat effectiveness by the time they work their way to the Dnipro River. Even if they have combat effectiveness, you turn around one morning and you find every fuel tank truck behind you has been destroyed and all your ammunition is being captured. And now you're going to have to start protecting in 360 degrees. It could get very unhappy for the Russians here. But if that's the case, uh, Malcolm, in the last couple of minutes here, what's going to happen with Putin? If he's a caged animal, everybody's concerned that he's going to strike out. There's concern, in fact, expressed by the Polish president uh, that uh, Russia could use chemical weapons. It's it's quite possible he could use chemical weapons. It won't change the, the calculus of the war. All it will do is literally kill civilians. Um, you know, chemical weapons are, you know, Russia generally tends to use chemical weapons that are semi-persistent, uh, you know, nerve gases, sarin, uh, VX, uh, mustard. And even though they clear out after a few hours, your forces have to go through there. And I don't, you know, I don't know about many of your listeners, but I took part in Desert Storm, the invasion of Kuwait, and what we thought was going to be a high chemical warfare environment. So we had all of our ChemBio gear on except for our masks. Uh, it was very, very difficult to, 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 to carry out the initial operation. When it turned out the Iraqis didn't use chemical weapons, you know, it was a blitz. The Russians, on the other hand, put on gas masks. You know, after a few hours, it's not the, it's not the soldiers or the, the, the village you just hit you have to worry about. It's now every other soldier, guerrilla, and civilian in that country that now wants to slit your throat because you use ChemBio. So the only chance that I see, and in fact this was expressed by the former CIA station chief in uh, Moscow, that the only likelihood of anybody doing away with Putin, the threat wouldn't come from the oligarchs, it would come from the Siloviki, the intelligence people around him. Do you buy that theory? Yeah, that comes from John Seifer. And, you know, John has great experience there. However, the oligarchy are now losing everything they have ever earned. The only place they can go in the world now is Russia. And the only thing, you know, staying in Russia means that you are now under the boot, if not the knife, of Vladimir Putin. Um, it will get onerous, they, and uh, they will have to uh, do more. Malcolm, I thank you very much for joining us here today. And again, I've been speaking with Malcolm Nance, a career counterterrorism and intelligence officer with the United States Government Special Operations Homeland Security and Intelligence Agency, who has over 33 years of experience in combating radical extremism. He's the author of The Plot to Betray America, How Team Trump Embraced Our Enemies, Com Compromised Our Security, and How We Can Fix It, and the forthcoming book, they want to kill Americans, the malicious terrorist and deranged ideology of the Trump insurgency. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a former United States Air Force nuclear missile operator about concerns that Putin may use chemical or even nuclear weapons in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Cole Smith, a writer and director who received an MFA in screenwriting at Columbia University after serving in the United States Air Force as a nuclear missile operator. He has an op-ed at The Guardian, I was a nuclear missile operator. There have been more near misses than the world knows. Welcome to Background Briefing, Cole Smith. Thanks, Ian. Good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And just a few days ago on March the 9th, we're now learning that in the course of a routine maintenance in India, a technical malfunction led to the accidental firing of a missile 
uh, which the Indian government said uh, that uh, they learned that the missile landed in an area of Pakistan. And while the incident is deeply regrettable, it is also a matter of relief that there was no loss of life due to the accident. Now, this is pretty significant because most arms control analysts and people that study nuclear weaponry and the possibility of nuclear war have often said that the most likely place a nuclear war would break out would be between India and Pakistan. So this, I guess, illustrates the point that you're making in your op-ed at The Guardian. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ian. I mean, I think um, most people have a fairly dated idea of what the threat from uh, nuclear missiles are, if they have an idea at all, right? You know, since the since the Cold War, we've really um, culturally stopped having a discussion about these weapons. And, and um, you know, I spent uh, five years in the U.S. Air Force stewarding these weapons. And I can tell you that, that the, the men and women that we have stewarding these weapons do a really great job. Um, as, long as, as long as we have these weapons, um, you know, we're taking good care of them in terms of the U.S. Air Force. And that's where the bulk of the nuclear missiles are. Uh, in the U.S. and the Russian Air Forces. But the problem is that as long as these things exist, there is a, um, a non-zero number that there's going to be an accident somewhere in the world with them, no matter how good a steward we are. And if we continue to live with these things for um, decades or even centuries, then eventually that non-zero number is going to strike and there will be an accident. Well, you point out, though, in your article, Cole, the kind of moral dilemma or the or the state of dissonance let me just quote the state of dissonance that every nuclear missile operator lives with we are told day in and day out that our integrity is crucial to the deterrent value of nuclear weapons and helps make the world a safer place but what man or woman of integrity could possibly launch a nuclear weapon so there it is right yeah that's exactly right i mean the um the the way that we use nuclear weapons as a strategic force in the air force is still based on that cold war idea of mutually assured destruction um it's you know the the air force has a, a long-held theory of deterrence that they really take very seriously they even have a kind of equation behind it which is that the deterrent value of the weapon equals capability times will times perception in other words the weapons are as effective as the enemy um, perceives our capability and the will to use them. Um, and so it, it just, it does, in terms of talking integrity, it, it's hard for a person of integrity to sit there and steward these weapons when you know that the only end result, if they're being used, is that you're going to retaliate and inflict um, mutually assured destruction on, on, the, on your enemy. So it's just not a worldview that uh, that really coincides with integrity. Well, it's not a worldview, though, that coincides or it comes up against the madman theory, that, which mm -hmm. is what we're facing now in uh, Ukraine. That Putin has obviously broken a lot of norms and now has done what most people did not expect, invaded Ukraine, and he certainly lied about his intentions all along. And he's clearly had, had this in the planning for a long time. So now you have a situation where he's already gone on a nuclear alert. And the madman theory is such that he gets a deterrence in the sense that NATO doesn't want a no-fly zone because they don't want to start to provide the pretext for a trigger for a nuclear war. So doesn't mm -hmm. that give Putin a lot of room to maneuver? I mean, it's not out of the question, for example, if... If things go worse for him in Ukraine, and it's certainly not going well for him in terms of his military ambitions, he could fire off a tactical nuclear weapon almost to sort of as a, a warning to the Ukrainians to surrender. That's not entirely out of the question. It's not too far-fetched. And I imagine he won't be that deterred because he knows that NATO doesn't want a nuclear war. Nobody wants a nuclear war. So... How does that yeah, factor yeah. Into, into your training? Well, I, I mean, I think that's right. Unfortunately, I think the problem is that it really doesn't factor in. You know, the, these Cold War theories of deterrence and mutually assured destruction um, really don't account for the, the madman theory, as you say. Um, 
which is what we the situation that we find ourselves in now um, with Russia. And, you know, Putin may be mad, but he's not stupid and, and he knows this. And so um, that's the problem with uh, with nuclear deterrence right now. And, it, and it, you know, this extends to um, really a lot of the conflicts and the geopolitical situations that we've had over the last decade and a half or so, thinking as well of North Korea. Um, this context of mutually assured destruction doesn't work when the leader um, of the other country really doesn't care about the the welfare of their citizens or when they're so, um, which is the case, I believe, with Putin, he's so all in. Um, he's really doubled down on what's happening in Ukraine militarily that he's really got nothing to lose. I mean, if, if he if he loses this um, this engagement, he, there's not a clear path forward for him as the leader of this country. And he knows that. So um, nuclear weapons become a really scary factor in a situation like this. And again, I'm speaking with Cole Smith, who's a writer and director who received an MFA in screenwriting at Columbia University after serving in the United States Air Force as a nuclear missile operator. And he has an op-ed at The Guardian, I was a nuclear missile operator. There have been more near misses than the world knows. And already Putin has used weapons of mass destruction on NATO countries. He used uh, Novichok a nerve agent in poisoning a former GRU officer, Skripal, and his daughter in Salisbury in the UK. And GRU operators uh, did that. They also earlier had used polonium, a nuclear isotope, on um, a former KGB officer, Litvinenko. So that ought to be clear to us, doesn't it? I mean, I've always been astounded at how U.S. authorities have been reluctant to talk about who Putin really is over the years, the brutality with which he operates, how he rose to power by killing hundreds of his own citizens in bombing apartment buildings, etc. Only recently did the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, lay out this information, but it's never been really understood. And when you are trained as a nuclear launch officer, what kind of discussions are there about the kind of people who have their fingers on the button and what kind of restraints there are? Because there was a great deal of concern towards the end of, of President Trump's tenure that General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, apparently intervened in a conversation with Nancy Pelosi. That she came up with some kind of regime by which they could head off Trump if he decided to press the button for some political reason. So is this ever brought up? Or is it just above your pay grade? Well, it's it's a little bit of both. I would say that um, the the short answer to the question is that um, nuclear missile operators, which is to say they are also a subset of U.S. Air Force officers. So Air Force officers take an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the oath that all Air Force officers take. Um and that's an important oath because the, your allegiance in that oath is not to any one person or even to the commander in chief. If they um, tell you to do something that goes against the Constitution of the United States. But nuclear missile operators have a, a catch in that oath that is different from any other oath that officers take. And that is that after you swear that oath to the Constitution, you have to sign a piece of paper that says that you will launch a nuclear weapon if the president of the United States orders you to. Uh, it doesn't matter if that order goes against what you feel that you read in the Constitution. If the president tells you to launch a nuclear missile, you have to launch. That's, that's, the, uh, that's the oath that you swear as a nuclear missile operator. And it is unique, um, as I say, among all other Air Force officers that are out there serving. Um, so the short answer is that if if the president tells you to launch, you launch. Um, however, over the last few years, the culture of nuclear missiles, and I say over the last few years, ever since 2014, when there was a cheating and drug scandal that broke in the nuclear missile operator ranks, um, this was breaking news back then at the time. There was a 60 Minutes article on it, and it was front page of the New York Times. Um, but ever since then, they've done a lot to change the culture of 
um, of nuclear missile operators in the Air Force. And again, that kind of became just from decades and decades of what they called crew rot. Ever since the Cold War, this career field became something that people didn't really think a lot about. Um, and so they weren't sending the, the best and the brightest, shall we say, to work with nukes. Um, and they, they've changed a lot of things. They've given more incentives for sort of the top Air Force officers to go and work with these weapons. And uh, back to your original point, one of the things that's changed is that they have done a much better job of educating the nuclear missile force. So every single day that you go out to work on a nuclear missile, you're getting uh, classified briefings from the Air Force intel community. Um, you are getting that more strategic view of what's going on in the world, uh, why you're targeting the nukes the way you're targeting them, um, why you're being postured the way you are. And in essence, they're, they're doing a much better job of, um, of just educating the officers on why they're out there day to day doing what they're doing. So that's one of the biggest things that's, that's changed. But at the end of the day, if an order comes down from the president of the United States to launch, there is no discussion there. The, the Air Force nuclear missile operators that are out there will launch the weapon. And the cheating scandal that you referred to in 2013, 11 ICBM officers were implicated in this drug scandal, and, and the following year, 34 ICBM launch officers were implicated in, in a cheating scandal on their monthly proficiency tests. So uh, you also mentioned in the article, of course, the incident that took place in Arkansas in 1980 where an accident of spanner was dropped down the silo of a liquid fuel Titan missile with a nine megaton warhead, which is uh, 500 times greater than the warheads uh, that incinerated Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And that blew up. Fortunately, the warhead didn't go off. And you talk about one of the airmen that was injured and to this day has been in agony because of back injuries, Greg Devlin. So that's just one of many incidents, though, isn't it? I mean, I don't know that there's ever been an accounting of all of the nuclear near misses. Is it, have you ever seen one, uh, Cole? Well, there, there is a, a short list um, for that accounting, and, and that's the official designation um, is a broken arrow. And a broken arrow is defined as an unexpected event involving nuclear weapons that results in the accidental launching, firing, detonating, theft, or loss of the weapon. Um, so, it, it, in other words, it's every time um, that a nuclear missile was either lost or nearly exploded. And they, the official Air Force count of broken arrows is up to 32. Um, now, that's over the life of the nuclear missile program. So, this dates back into the 50s. Um, but there have been 32 near misses where we've almost had explosions or we've – and there's also, um, I believe, six warheads – um, over the course of nuclear missile history that had just been lost. They've been jettisoned from planes accidentally over the ocean um, and incidents like that where the war has just disappeared, literally. Um, however, in uh, while researching for his book, uh, Command and Control, Eric Schlosser um, obtained previously classified documents that revealed hundreds of more near misses. And, and um, you, can, you can read about this on... Um, uh, PBS has released um, a number of uh, articles about this, but again, these are sort of official documents from the Air Force that um, were once classified that reveal hundreds of, of incidents over the years where there have nearly been um, accidental explosions with the nuclear weapons in our arsenal. But we don't know a lot about what happened on the Soviet side. What we do know is that uh, in the fall of 1983, a Soviet launch officer... Colonel Petrov got the alert that there were five incoming Minuteman missiles and he overrode the automatic response, which was to fire a massive salvo of Soviet missiles in to sort of preempt a preemption of a counterforce strike, the theory being that the enemy is targeting your your ICBM, so you've got to get them out of the silos before their incoming missiles hit the silos and uh, it's going to be nasty but it'd be a lot less nasty if you didn't uh, launch your weapons and that's the kind of nuclear hair trigger that we lived with throughout the entire cold war what happened with well, that's uh, go ahead well that's exactly right i mean i think there's 
there's two really important points here. One is that um, all of these broken arrows and classified documents that we're talking about that account for the accidents really only do account for basically U.S. accidents. Now, in the in the broken arrows, there's a few Russian incidents in there, but for the most part, um, we're only talking about the incidents that have gone on in the U.S. Air Force as we've been stewarding these weapons. And as I've said, we're pretty good stewards of these weapons, and we've done a pretty good job of documenting the incidents. Um, so the question should be, what's going on in every other country that has nuclear weapons? You know, what's going on um, over the last 50 years with Russia's arsenal? What will happen or what is happening with North Korea? When there's this blanket of secrecy, you have no idea what the near misses, um, what the near misses are in, in their arsenal. Now, the other point that I think you make that's really important to, to mention here is that, um, you know, you mentioned that if, uh, if there were to be incoming missiles to the U.S. right now, the this theory of deterrence and of mutually assured destruction um, would sort of de demand from our strategy that we also launch our weapons. Now, the important thing to remember is that there's anywhere from, from 400 to 500, there's usually around 450 nukes that are on alert and ready to launch at any given time. And the absurdity to that is that each one of those nukes is really just aimed at another nuke for the most part. Um, we've, as we've learned over the years that Russia will gain, you know, five ICBMs, we'll put five ICBMs on alert to target those five ICBMs. And then they'll put another five ICBMs on alert to target those five that we put on. So it's really this, um, you know, zero sum game where each of these weapons is just pointing at another weapon, um, to ensure that their arsenal is not more destructive than ours is. And that's where the real absurdity uh, of these weapons comes in. But just in the last minute, Cole, just to finish up with Colonel Petrov and the incident in the Soviet Union in, in the fall of 1983, he saved the world, in effect, but he got punished mm -hmm. by the Soviet authorities, and he actually had a tour here in the United States hosted by the, the movie star Kevin Costner, who paid his bills and helped him out because he, he lost his pension as a result of saving the world. So what an irony. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there's really no place for um, and when it comes to nuclear missile operations, as far as the strategy is concerned, there's no place for the actual operators to make decisions. And this is an example of that. I mean, he made a decision that, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, saved the world. And he was punished for it because it weakened the the Americans perception of the Russians ability to launch or um or to respond to a nuclear attack. At least that's how the Russians saw it. Well, Carl Smith, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I mean, speak with Carl Smith, who's a writer and director who received an MFA in screenwriting at Columbia University after serving in the United States Air Force as a nuclear missile operator. And he has an op-ed at The Guardian. I was a nuclear missile operator. There have been more near misses than the world knows. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half